want to start off by maybe reminding you of a news story you heard in October of 2020. Uh, a Florida man was arrested uh, for slashing his own cousin uh, with a knife. And the argument wasn't over money, wasn't over a girl, wasn't over sports, but whether or not almond milk is superior to whole milk. Their whole argument turned into, from a verbal disagreement into a physical altercation when one cousin insisted strongly about their opinion and the other one became enraged, punching his own cousin in the side of the head. At this, the cousin started to fight back and one thing led to another and the first cousin pulled out a knife and started chasing his own cousin through the front yard before witnesses and authorities came to quell the situation and arrest this man. And I know you're thinking, well, that is ridiculous. That's the stupidest possible argument people could possibly have. But the reality is that, unfortunately, in our day, in our age, that people can get into relationship-killing fights over anything. When you think about how many people are suffering over arguments about money or their marriage, we've seen in the news people getting upset about kids' sports, and not just the kids, the parents who get into altercations and fights over things like that. And of course, in our very polarized nation today, politics has become such a taboo about, for discussion because it creates all kinds of chaos and difficulties. I think about how often people will come to me at church and they're, they're having a, uh, maybe a disagreement with someone that they haven't talked to a brother or sister over a, a misconstrued look or a misconstrued word. And it turns out it's completely just a misunderstanding. And so sadly, instead of being the light of the world, it also can happen within the church. And so the question we're dealing with this morning is, how do we deal with disunity and division within the body of Christ? And so this morning, if you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're continuing this series called Clear, where we're learning in a world that is full of confusion and conflict to see life through the countercultural lens of the gospel, how the good news about Jesus impacts every area of life. And previously, you might remember that what's happening is this, the cosmopolitan values of the city of Corinth, things like personal success and personal pleasure, worshiping whatever fits your needs, began to blur the eyes of the Christians living there. And so we saw in chapter 1 that the Apostle Paul writes to the church for them to see their lives clearly through the lens of their identity in Christ. That as we are loved, as we are forgiven, as we are accepted by Jesus, it grows us in holiness and unity together to make us distinct from the world. And then in chapter 2, we saw that if your identity is about who you are, then wisdom determines where you will go. That by trusting in the finished work of Jesus at the cross, we receive the power of the Holy Spirit to guide us with wisdom, to transform us with God's wisdom in life-giving directions about our decisions and our disagreements, about our future and our finances, about our morals, our marriages, our singleness, or sexuality instead of the world's destructive wisdom. Now today, Paul begins to move in a very practical direction as he applies the wisdom and identity of Christ into conflicts between people in the family of Christ, in the church. Chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, 
as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife amongst you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely, are you not being merely human? Let's stop right there for a moment. So in chapter 1, if you jump backwards, I mentioned how uh, the Corinthians, they were fighting over who's their favorite preacher, if you might remember from chapter 1, that they somehow believed that by associating with a certain person like Paul or Apollos or Simon Peter, that somehow that makes me more spiritual, more holy than other people at church. And so Paul called them out. He calls them as the family of Christ to learn to live in agreement together instead of division. And when we talk about being in agreement and being in unity in the body of Christ, we're not talking about mindless conformity. We're talking about mindful, thoughtful harmony about Jesus, about the cross, about the gospel, and how that affects how we live together. And so here Paul declares in verse 1, you Corinthian Christians, you are not spiritual. Now what he's saying there is he's not saying that they're not Christians. He's saying that they don't live like it. You're not thinking, you're not acting as somebody who is spiritually alive in Christ, as someone who has received the Holy Spirit. You might remember from chapter 1 and 2 that, that our wisdom from God, from the Jesus, comes through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. So you're not spiritually alive. You're not living out of your spiritual identity. Instead, you're of the flesh. You're fleshly. That means that you're living out human, limited, worldly, sinful perspectives. And so you're living like you're a baby in Christ unable to discern spiritual truth, live a spiritually holy life and in unity in Christ. So in verse 2, he says, instead of growing from the spiritual milk of the gospel that I gave to you, you're chasing what you think is more solid meat of worldly wisdom. And worldly wisdom looks like this. Yeah, sure, Jesus and his word are fine, but now I've learned other things. I'm more enlightened about relationships, about sex, about money, about morals, about God. I've learned more beyond the gospels, other spiritual truths about my freedom in Christ. I can do whatever I want and sin however I like because I'm already saved. I'm already cleansed. Those kind of things. Worldly wisdom. So in verses 3 to 4, he says, but the evidence before you By arguing over who you're following in our church, you're actually living out of your flesh. You're revealing the same petty jealousy and strife as anyone, as people, without the Holy Spirit. Fleshly. And so for you and I, we may not argue over things like who's our favorite preacher at church because you only have one pastor over this congregation. And I know some of you are arguing like, well, none of the messages are that good. But the same issues that the Corinthians face actually plague us as well in the sense of we also experience unresolved disagreements, division within the, the church itself. And so think about those kind of relationships you have. And so as we talk about the big idea of the passage this morning, just from the verses we've already studied, It's this picture of ongoing disunity in the body of Christ is always a sign of spiritual immaturity in that we are living apart from Christ. It's not that you or I may not be a Christian, but that we're not living like it. We're relying instead 
on our human thoughts, our human desires, our human opinions of the flesh, detached from the spiritual of what Jesus has done and what Jesus continues to do in our lives. And one of the clearest symptoms of that is when we have a tendency to erupt in ongoing conflicts within the family of Christ. And so let's do a little self-evaluation, myself and you. I want you to think about, is there any time you ever look down on or distance yourself from someone because maybe a minor difference in theology? Do you distance yourself from someone because of how they do ministry? You don't like the way they do things. Is there someone that you are looking down upon because of their politics in the body of Christ, brother or sister? Is there someone that you are separating yourself from because of a misconstrued word and you never resolve that? Do you have any tensions at home or at church where you're withholding forgiveness and you have no intention of reconciling? Now, what I'm not talking about is if it's a person or situation that's toxic or dangerous. You know, we don't just ignore sinfulness. But God's word and God's people have been counseling you and nudging you. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to heal that relationship. Now, the question is, well, yes, I know that I'm supposed to be spiritual, that I'm supposed to have Jesus and how that informs my life, but how does Jesus move us from kind of a fleshly living and fleshly perspective of disagreements to maturity? Look at me with verse 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the, gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So in verses 5 and 7, uh, Paul tells the Corinthian congregation, you've got it all wrong. You see, it's not about who is better or who's more important or who contributes more in the body of Christ. That I and Apollos were both of us servants of God. We're one as servants of God with different tasks that were assigned to us by God. That you need both a Paul to plant the church and then you need Apollos to come along and continue watering the church. But it's God who ultimately is responsible for the spiritual growth and the spiritual fruit in people's lives. And I know we can get that picture. Yes, everyone has a different role. They're all equally important. But maybe you come to church and it's the, you come and you feel, well, I'm just frustrated with someone at church. Because the reality is I sacrifice more in ministry or I have sacrificed more in raising a family or giving financially or dealing with difficulties in my life than other people or having to compromise relationally. I do more. And Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that we don't earn our salvation from God. We're saved by grace, not by our works. But here in verses 8 and 9, God wants you to hear that he does honor our work. But to remember, that's not about what you do because the growth is really from God. So what that means is we don't have to worry about recognition from people. We trust in our reward from God because in the church, all of us are field hands, but it's God's field. And so what I want you to see this morning from this part of the passage is that the first step in overcoming 
immaturity and disunity in the body of Christ is for us to see each other as fellow servants of God's growth in God's field. And here's why this is so important and how it addresses disunity. It changes our perspective, right, about how we relate to other people. Because it's saying that that person, they're of equal value. We're on the same team. We're working together, not in competition, and it's all for God. That God is the one who assigns the tasks. God is the one who gives the rewards. God is the one who causes the growth, not us. And so the church belongs to God. And so I think about it this way. Uh, yesterday, if you can pull the next picture up on the big screen, my son, my oldest son, Indy, he's training for his very first mar mixed martial arts competition. So he's going to compete this coming Saturday. And so uh, it's different. He attends martial arts like, you know, twice a week. And it's kind of like, you know, for younger kids, so that it's more fun than it is serious training. Uh, and so the way my wife describes it is uh, the martial arts academy he attends has kind of a reputation where they, they never win any competitions. And it's kind of more like just kids having fun. But once you enter a paid competition, it gets a little bit more serious. And so now he comes three times a week, including Saturdays to train. And yesterday, he accidentally, he was uh, training with a bigger kid, and he accidentally clocked that kid, uh, that bigger kid, a little bit too hard in the face. Like you could, I was sitting in the chair, and I, I stood up for a sec because I saw this big kid, his neck snapped back like, Book! and then you saw the look come over this boy's face. He completely lost his composure, went berserk, and started swinging wildly at Indy. Now, at the end of the training time, the coach gathers all the students around, and he has to remind them, remember, you're on the same team, that when you go into the competition, we're rooting for each other. And during our training, sometimes we might accidentally hurt each other, but remember that we're trying to help each other grow better. And I think about that a lot because how much more so in the body of Christ that God is so committed to our unity that we would reflect the gospel about the good news about Jesus, that Jesus himself prays for us specifically in John 17, verse 21, that all of them, all the people in the church, all the followers of Jesus may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. In other words, that we would be so united, we would be as intimate and uh, bound together as Jesus is with his Father, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that our unity is our testimony to the world about the reality of Jesus. And so, if you and I are fellow servants in the body of Christ, the first step in disarming our divisions in our marriage, in our ministry, in our church family, it's to remind ourselves we're on the same team. We're equally accepted. We're equally valued. We're equally loved in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore hurts or that we don't need to work through a process of healing or repentance when somebody has wronged us. But if we're on the same team, if we're equally loved and valued in Christ, then we want to treat each other like it instead of as competitors or as enemies. Yes, Pastor Josh, I get it, but what do I do if I'm still irritated with my mom or my husband or this brother or sister in Christ? Practically. Verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, Paul, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, someone else is building upon it, let each one take care how he builds upon it. 
for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So in verses 10 and 11, we're shifting gears now. Paul has talked about the church as God's field. Now he's talking about the church as God's building. And then in verses 10 and 11, he's not talking about church as a physical building. A lot of times when you go outside of the Christian world, people think of church as simply a building. But it's not a physical building. He's talking about the gathering of God's people to worship and serve Jesus. And so the picture he paints is that a church is like a house, and Paul is like a project manager who constructed some of the frame. And then other people come along like Apollos who lay the plumbing, or Linda who comes and does the electrical work, and then Chang comes in and does the drywall. But it's not a comparison or a competition. What matters is that everything that everyone building is building, all is being built on the solid foundation of Jesus and the gospel. And so what that means is, does what we do together magnify Jesus and his work on the cross? Then in verses 12 and 13, he says that that's not just for people like Paul and Apollos, but all who follow Jesus, all who are part of the body of Christ, participate in the construction. But the quality of what you contribute is up to us. Now, what I mean by that is that he says some of us will build with what is costly, gold, silver, precious gems. Others with what's combustible, hay, wood, straw. And on the day of judgment, which is when Jesus returns to right every wrong and to establish his kingdom forever, that all that people who follow Jesus have built will be tested by fire, it says, to see what sort of work each has done. And the picture there isn't about like, well, I need to earn my salvation or I need to try harder and do better for Jesus. But in verses 14 and 15, he's painting a picture, like the quality of gold and silver and, and precious gems. How much of, how does what I have built, how much does it glorify Jesus? So it's not about how expensive or how much you give or spent, but is the quality of it, is it splendid, is it glorifying, is it honoring to Jesus? Are you building what's golden and glorifying and lasting? Or are you building with useless straw, things that are useless in the faith, that are useless in fire, that are going to be burnt up like all that straw and hay. And the picture Paul paints is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're still saved by faith, but you're like a dude jumping out from a burning building with nothing to show from your life here. Right? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy it, where thieves break in and steal it, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And so we want to start by asking ourselves, am I just building things in my life for my health, my wealth, my happiness, my family today? Or, as part of a church, am I building things that last? Or am I burning, or having, building things that are going to be burnt away, even as I enter into eternity? Now, how does this relate 
to our immaturity and disunity in, in the body of Christ. I think about this way. You and I were often driven by what we think others do or others fail to do in our own family, in our church ministry. And I want to argue that a lot of our concerns about people, they're seldom legitimate concerns about maybe key theology or morality. That more often, they are products of our own subjective preferences and differences. I don't like how that person leads worship. I don't like how that person leads Bible study. I don't like how that person deals with kids' ministry. I don't like the way that person welcomed me. I don't like how they ignored me. I don't like how they called me out during small group. I don't like how that person talks or how they dress or how they act. And we think that criticism is some kind of spiritual gift. Instead, Paul asks, what are you building? You see, we tend to focus on others' shortcomings, which cause a lot of our conflicts, but we need to focus on what I am building to last that glorifies Jesus in God's building. And so, as I'm part of the body of Christ, how am I serving people? How am I giving? How am I treating people? How am I honoring Jesus? In my worship, in my ministry, in my friendship, in my family, what lasts is what lives out the gospel and glorifies God. So I think about, uh, I hang out with various groups of friends, and there's a group of Christian friends that I hang out with um, that are mostly pastors. And, you know, when we get together, we talk basketball, we talk movies, we talk about our hobbies, we talk about uh, your mom jokes, and all of that stuff, it's fine, but it's all wood, it's all hay, it's all straw. And now what I'm not saying is that it's not okay to just be human, to be friends. But the question is, is that it? Is there anything that when we're gathered together that honors God? Would anyone be able to see Jesus from our interactions together? And the point of me sharing that is not to criticize other people, but to evaluate, what am I building? Am I building things that are useless in the family of Christ or glorifying to Jesus? And so I had a deep conviction that I need to honor Jesus more by building deeper spiritual relations and conversations with my own friends to be able to dig up, dig into things like, how is your marriage? How is your walk with Jesus? How is your sin in your life? Things that honor Jesus, things that help us grow deeper as the body of Christ, rather than just criticizing and being frustrated with other people. And so to bring it home for each of us, when you're having a conflict with someone, is the focus more on what others do or on what I do? Yes, Josh, but you don't understand. I mean, I go to church regularly. I serve occasionally and give once in a while. But I'm also hateful and spiteful with a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. Is that honoring towards Jesus? Is what you're building lasting? Or am I practicing speaking the truth in love, to build others up, Ephesians 4, 15? Am I hearing Jesus as he challenges forgiven followers in Matthew chapter 18, verse 33, to show mercy to your fellow servants as your master has shown you? Because that is building with gold. That's building things to last in the family of Christ. Last challenge for you. What if, though, 
what you're building isn't simply useless. It's actually harmful or destructive to other people. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, plural collective as a church, are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone amongst you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written... He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, from Job, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. In verse 16, Paul shifts gears again. The church is like a field, is God's field. The church is like God's building. And now in verse 16, the church is like the Old Testament temple, which was the dwelling place of God in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. And then Paul says that you, plural, collectively, together as a church, are that temple, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God the very presence and power of God to make you spiritually alive in Christ, to build up the body of Christ as you worship and serve and glorify Christ together. And so in verse 17, he challenges us. What if what you're doing, instead of building up, is tearing people down in the body of Christ? And if that's the case, he issues a very dire warning if you are destroying the unity and integrity of the church, you are not likely to be a genuine follower of Jesus and will face the judgment of God. Because despite its imperfections, the church is holy to Him. It's set apart for His glory. And so when we act, when we influence destructively, if we don't take ourselves seriously, we need to know that God will. Now, the Corinthians... They have all kinds of problems in the church. We're going to see in later chapters that they're wrecking the church from within by immorality, by false teaching, by their disputes. But here in verses 18 through 20, he says, all those things that are causing problems in the church are come from us deluding ourselves by applying the world's standards to our faith, to our relationships, to our life, and we're calling that wisdom. And we think we're building with gold, but what God says is we're actually foolish. So in verse 21, he identifies what the real problem is. In all these things from uh, false teaching, bad theology, immorality, but in even the conflicts that they're having in the church, that in verse 21, you're boasting in men, in man's wisdom, in men's association with Paul or Apollos, in, our, in men's accomplishments, in man's abilities. And the issue here is sinful pride. And that is the undercurrent of all worldly wisdom, that somehow I know more, I know better than you, than Paul, than Jesus, than the gospel. And of course, doesn't that make sense? Because that's the kind of attitude that leads to conflicts and strife. 
that we saw in verse 3. So in verses 21 to 23, arrogance says, I'll prove that I'm right, that I'm better. But humility says, I don't need to because I have Jesus. And in him, I have all that I need. That because I have the Holy Spirit and every spiritual blessing, that I don't need to fight about, do I belong to Team Paul or Team Apollos? That they belong to us. Jesus gives them to us to teach us. That I'm not enslaved by this life or by the fear of death or about our, my current circumstances or about my fears of the future because all those things belong to us because we belong to Jesus and our eternity and our security are assured in his hands. Now, this is a really intense, beautiful theological framework that has broader implications for the rest of the book. But in the context of divisions and disagreements, what we want to pick up from this part of the passage this morning is that the antidote to our destructive arrogance in God's temple, in the family of Christ, is humility about all that we have in Jesus. That instead of responding to people out of our insecurity and our arrogance of whatever I thought I lacked, because that's usually why we start to conflict with people. There's something that you took from me that you harm, hurt me with. Instead of responding out of our insecurity, we can respond from the overflow of all I have in Christ forever instead of what I lack from others. That you won't have to compare or compete or conflict with people. Instead, you can be complete, content, and kind. Not because of what I can do, but, but humbly trusting what Jesus does and what he has for me. So this past Wednesday, I was sharing with my growth group. That I appreciate my growth group so much because it's a place where I can be very honest about my shortcomings and sharing with them how I didn't know how it happened, but I've fallen into this really bad pattern when I have a disagreement with my wife, even if it's little things, it's just like my shields go up and it's easy for me to speak very defensively or destructively towards my beloved wife and even towards my kids. Where does that come from? You see, I have this immense pride within me that's actually masking the deep-rooted insecurities that I have, that I don't want to feel criticized or rejected. And so I fight because it's easier to deflect the pain, but it's also more destructive. But this past week, I was sharing with our growth group that Melissa really reminded me of the grace and the acceptance that I have in Jesus, all that I have in Christ, and experiencing it as it overflows from her to me. And so as I experienced that all I have in Jesus, all that I have in the family of Christ through my wife Melissa, it started to disarm my arrogance and my insecurities. Instead of coming to her with my weapons raised and ready to fight, we were able to painfully but meaningfully connect it gave me space to repent from my sinfulness, to experience her forgiveness as we practice being the body of Christ together. Because too often in conflict, shame is this open flame meant to punish and destroy others. But grace, all that we have in Jesus is this healing water that empowers us to change. And so I want to ask you this morning, where are your weapons up? Where are you allowing your arrogance and insecurity to fight and harm others? And do you need to repent 
of your divisiveness and destructiveness and your arrogance in your disagreements? And what if you could lay those weapon down, weapons down? That if the antidote to reacting out of our insecurity is finding humility and the assurance of our eternity and security in Christ. Now I'm going to be very frank with you. This is just not going to fix all of your relationships, all of your arguments, any broken friendships you have at church. We'll tackle more of that in chapters 12 through 14. 12 through 14. But this is the starting point. Are you clear about unity in his church? That it's not just an option. It's a command. That we cannot be part of the body of Christ and continue to harbor disputes and division amongst us. And it's not that we'll never have disagreements in the family of Christ. You will. You're human. And we're still growing and being changed by Jesus. But that we don't have to respond from our flesh. We can live through the Spirit of Christ. And so I wonder if there is a nagging, a tugging from the Holy Spirit in the back of your heart, in the back of your mind this morning. An unresolved conflict with someone in the body of Christ that you've been trying to ignore. And just kind of keep going. If you're like me, just, I tend to just keep moving forward with my life instead of dealing with the issues and the wreckage in my past. And is Jesus calling you to begin working on it, to begin restoring, to begin reconciling in the family of Christ? No matter the divide, through the work of Jesus on a cross, that makes all of us on the same team in God's field. No matter what someone has done to you or failed to do for you, that I'm the one who's called to build what glorifies Jesus in God's building. So I don't need to focus so much on what they do. I need to pay attention to what I do. And no matter what the differences we might have with someone, the presence and the power of God give us humble security in Christ so that we don't have to destroy people out of our arrogance and insecurity in God's temple. May you be clear about the unity that you and I are called to in the body of Christ, in the church, by living out the wisdom of Christ, the identity in Christ, and our family in Christ today. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we call upon you that though the steps are simple, the living is hard. And so we come before you recognizing that we have all kinds of disputes and divisions with other people in our lives. And for many of us, we think being a Christian, mean, being a good Christian means, well, I just shouldn't say anything. I should just ignore it. But the truth is, what ends up happening more often than not is we just walk away from people whom we are called to be interdependent members of the body of Christ. And that other person never, never learns, never grows, never is able to reconcile with us. Change us, O oh God. Give us boldness in Jesus. Give us courage to live out something different, that we do not have to respond to disagreements the same way as the world does. But by the power of Christ, we can start learn to see each other as the same team in God's field, that we can focus less on other people's wrongs 
and learn to build something right, something that lasts, something that glorifies Jesus and how we relate to one another. Lord, if there's someone that you're putting on our hearts this morning, we ask that you would draw us into your presence first, that we would come in humility and repentance, not shame because of all we have in Christ, but fully accepted, fully forgiven, but bringing that painful thorn to you, allowing you to pull it out of it. And as you do, Lord, give us courage, wisdom, words to begin speaking the healing grace of Jesus to someone that we have dispute with even today.